SAFM 104 to 107 nationwide. Call us on 0611-410-4107. Thank you so much. Okay, so uh, throwback in history today, looking at Tabombeki and his life in general. Let's go all the way back in terms of his childhood. Being one of four children, and we know uh, Moile Tsimbeki, the economist, is uh, one of his brothers. Do you think coming from a well, we can say four children is kind of a big family, uh, that influenced him in terms of his drive and leadership? Yeah, definitely so. Uh, look at yeah, th- these were extraordinary times. Remember that, uh, given the time when his uh, early childhood, most of the time he spent was very much so, you know, in exile and uh, having to live through the times where there was a lot of political unrest during the time. I mean, he was born and raised in the Eastern Cape, <laughs> mm. and uh, he he spent a lot of time under the tutelage of his father and mother particularly, I mean, uh, Governor Mbeki being one of those uh, key political anchors, shaped a lot of uh, who actually ended up becoming Thabo Mbeki. The ideas from, you know, his father's side of it, in terms of, uh, you know, a communist outlook, were not necessarily translated. But uh, Mm. given the fact that he grew up under that very strong, strict, disciplined background, that gave him a lot, actually, to really shape himself as a person going into the future. So as you mentioned, his father was a stalwart of the ANC and the SA Communist Party, uh, but he was also Tabumpegi, uh, able, uh, former president Tabumpegi, able to find his own voice and, uh, and identity. How do you think he managed to do that? Look, I think uh, his uh, early uh, you know, uh, introduction into politics uh, shaped quite a lot of his uh, own personal voice. I mean, he went and studied overseas. He was abroad most of the time and uh, got a lot of expression in terms of political expression from the diversity of voices that, that, that existed at the time, given the fact that during the apartheid time, you know, ideology politically was not naturally cemented into fundamentalism, whereby people will only be, you know, given a particular outlook. So, you know, when apartheid was against the people of South Africa, everyone, you know, all forces came together and shaped what became the liberation struggle. So it was mm-hmm. not only the one voice that actually superseded or actually you know, triumphed over one. It became really a multitude of various ideological understanding, from even really studying the aspect of socialism, uh, capitalism, looking at it from a uh, you know, political outlook on communism, and then again defining it from an African perspective. I mean, coming out of exile, he came, uh, you know, coming back into South Africa from his now, he came back as an African. I mean, that was the most amazing thing, that after having gone through all of those torturous years, spending years as well as, uh, you know, his early youth days in the UK particularly, and uh, he comes back not as this Englishman, but he comes back and says, I'm an African who believes mm. in the African uh, Renaissance dream and vision, which means that whatever I've learned that the, you know, for, for instance, the Anglo-Saxon, you know, civilization is something that I feel 
was far superseded by Renaissance. And that's when I connected with him at the time. Mm. You know, because the Renaissance concept of African Renaissance is what really sort of gave us the hope that, you know, we are not all just doom and gloomed as an African society particularly. We can still go back and reclaim part of who we are. And then just a quick one on Renaissance. Mm. Remember, African Renaissance was not new in terms of the Renaissance concept was not an origin of a... Eurocentric European society. It was Africans who went into into Europe and actually gave them a Renaissance, which became the you know Renaissance era during the European struggling times. So people tend to forget that the Renaissance was not a European con- concept that started off in Europe. It was actually the Africans that went into Europe, the Moors, and created the Renaissance of Europe. What you enjoy today, the European civilization and society, came from the Africans. So mm. when he brought back that and said, let's revive ourselves as Africans and really celebrate the concept and the context of being proud Africans, when he really even went on that poem of I am an African, that is when a lot of people resonated to another element, mostly beyond the political side of it, but looking at it now from an African context and contextualization. And that is one one of the things that actually made him a very remarkable human being in that sense. You know, He combined politics with social and socioeconomic, uh, you know, consciousness. And that made a huge difference in the political stream of his life. And talking on uh, matters of the African continent, and you and I met at uh, the University of South Africa, and you are very much a part of uh, spearheading that being proudly uh, African in the work that you were doing at the time. I don't know if you remember when we met years, years, years ago. I but, do, yeah. Yes, yeah, so, but I mean, Beggar did a lot in terms of mediation on issues on the continent with, you know, Burundi, uh, the Democratic Republic of Congo, and Ivory Coast. What can be read into that work that he did uh, in terms of uh, using as a template for not only African leaders, but uh, every African to want to, make, you know, make a stand uh, and be an activist for Africa? Look, uh, his achievements are quite remarkable. I mean, uh, you know, there is political, uh, you know, criticism on what could have been done in South Africa, but his achievement on the continent in terms of really bringing about peace and unity, bringing about the cohesive One Africa idea and uh, ensuring that there is no longer this coup-based as well as conflict-war-based uh, regimes that are actually controlling the, the continent itself. I mean, the Burundi, the DRC issues, making sure that there was a peace settlements wherever there were crises, the recreation of what was, uh, you know, what is today the AU, you know, um, you know and then coming out of the Organization of African Unity and all of that contribution, going back to even reclaiming the Timbuktu heritage and legacy, which the current present government does not even probably have the understanding. I mean, for, for the past few years, there's been a complete diminishing in terms of Africa connecting with Africa, mm. you know, from an African point of view. A lot of the historical heritage, as well as uh, relics and legacy, has been abandoned. We're only talking the one stream of ideas in South Africa, and we're no longer talking from a very strong united Africa perspective of saying what do we do to unleash the potential so his contribution mm. I mean uh, from as the president at the time he used part of his time to go into what we call antiquity and actually re-bring back that pride as Africans you know I mean we're the most I mean brutally uh, damaged society mm. as Africa generally you know we come from a historical legacy of 500 years of brutalization 
and that you know Tabombeke brought in from his own contribution the element of saying we don't have to be stuck in that historical brutal history what we need to do is use the premise where we are and build this foundation of reclaiming back our greatness and that's what Mm -hmm. was exciting about the face at the time you know when the renaissance project was going on when south africa was collaborating with the various uh, you know african regions to bring back what used to be defined as being proudly african and 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 i think that made a remarkable uh, you know time and and don't forget that at the time you know elements of uh, pee started getting introduced whether it was beneficiary to the broader of society or not it's a different thing we can analyze and put it into context. But, you know, the broad-based economic, uh, the black uh, black economic empowerment started at the time to say, listen, the political direction should be that black people should be included into the political trajectory and economic growth, you know, whereby yeah. policies of government must be geared towards empowering black people. That was not a norm at any given time. I mean, we had just survived the RDP process whereby the reconstruction and development phase started off and it was focusing on a more on a social level of how to bring about our people who are sitting on the periphery of poverty coming out of rural areas having been previously excluded during apartheid were now brought in into the mainstream of economy and how to integrate them and then the broad-based economic empowerment was ushered in what happened in the process of implementation unfortunately was not the desired policy plan but he championed one of the most greatest policies that we are still enjoying until today when you talk about black wealth and black accumulation of wealth. It is due to the efforts of people such as President, former President Tabombeki in his element at the time. You know how stubborn he was on some of the issues. He was not even negotiable on aspects of implementation of some of the policies, particularly the PEE policy. You know, mm. And why do you think, as, as as young people, why do you think we don't acknowledge, you, you know, those contributions that he made, especially when we talk of the economics of this country? I mean, him being the an architect of NEPAD and then overseeing the building of bridges to the BRIC countries. But we, as young people, don't we hardly mention Tabumbeke. Look, South Africans are very geographic uh, in many understanding. I mean, we only talk uh, local politics. You know, you'll talk Johannesburg, you'll talk... Uh, Housing. People talk Eastern Cape. People talk, uh, you know, KwaZulu Natal. We're very geographic in terms of our political understanding. Mm-hmm. We are not really broad and diverse. I mean, we even think we are not within the African context. When we go outside of South Africa, we are going into Africa, and I don't mm-hmm. know what mm-hmm. South Africa sits on where. So you must understand the evolutionary process of our own psyche. Apartheid created that very local survivalist understanding of things. So. When you talk to somebody in a South African context and you put together the contextual contribution, for instance, at really the highest level, and you re- say Tabombeki, people become emotional. They go back to politics. They use the uh, ANC political squabbles, factions, you know, all of the issues that they have politically. Then they use that as a premise to discount an individual's contribution. They don't focus on the fundamentals. They don't focus on the successes. They don't focus on the visions that people pioneered. And that is why we, bec- we become such a overly critical society of ourselves. We don't praise the contributions. I mean, the 25 years have been mad with a lot of crisis. But in between the crisis, there's been a lot of great hope that emerged out of it. 
And in that hope, there's been great initiatives. Only if these initiatives can be sustained and taken forward, we would have seen a differently transformed society today, particularly socioeconomically. Because politically, we're transformed. Black mm-hmm. people are in power. You cannot blame any white person today for the political failures of a black government. It's black people who are in charge. So if they're not taking decisions that are in favor, if not biased towards their own black existence, you cannot then blame anybody else. I mean, it's fashionable today in South Africa to blame everything to London, Britain, Americans, and, uh, you know, whatever it is, we, we can call it anything. On a, light, on a lighter note, uh, he has, I mean, his appreciation of Shakespeare and Yeats, uh, the, the American poet, I mean, his love for literature and poetry, uh, then being transcended into the I'm, I Am an African poem that he uh, wrote and compiled. Do you think he was trying to show us that that is not just, a, you know, this po- staunch political leader who's so, you know, boring and, and rough and tough, but he's also got a creative side to him? I think he's always been creative because to survive that, uh, you know, process and, uh, you know, uh, going and living in a mostly a Eurocentric environment, the only thing that you would have survived there was to actually have an identity of your own. And I mean, you know, being in an exile space, identity becomes a critical element to hold on to. Mm. So when he brought in those elements of really poetry and started redefining himself and saying, you know, I think politics was a, you know, a grudge path. My passion has been really being a poet. It just brought in another element of an amazing facet towards his life. And not only that, his poetry came with a lot of historical education. Mm. You know, he gave a lot of historical lectures towards the history of South Africa, towards the history of apartheid, towards the history of colonization. I mean, starting off from 1652, back to that age. And then even coming back in terms of the element of antiquity from an African point of view, looking at now the achievements of Africans throughout the centuries, throughout ages, and how we are in this context where we are today because of that missing face of what we couldn't sustain due to colonization and the heavy empirical forces. So him turning against and not praising Shakespeare and all of them and turning back his poetry to an African context was an indication that he's a man committed to an African vision. You know, mm. whether it was sustained or not is another thing, you know. But the, his achievements are quite remarkable. I mean, under the most uh, tumultuous times of the time and the uh, challenges. I mean, he inherited leadership from Nelson Mandela at the time, who was the president, and uh, coming into his own shoes and mm. fitting that great personality of Mandela was not a simple fit on his own. You know, you had to be extraordinarily to be able to do a continuation of a legacy at the time, you know. Absolutely. So, and uh, and we could go on and on. There's so much to talk about, but we are unfortunately out of time. But thank you so much again, Adil, for your time. Thank you so much. Adil Nchabeleng is Transform RSA president, talking to us about the legacy of Thabo Mbeg. It's part of our Throwback Thursday here on Life Happens. It's half past two. Let's get news headlines with Uzile Sago.